Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's word from Rev, uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. It's God's word for his people today. You may be seated and let's pray once again and ask for our God to help us now. So Father, we beg you that you would show us Christ, that you would reveal your glory to us in the face of your Son, that your Spirit would take these words and make them true of us, that we would be people who walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, are fruit of the Spirit kind of people. And we pray these things for your glory uh, amongst our neighbors in the nations. And it's for our Savior's glory, we pray, and in his name we come and ask these things. Amen. So we've spent the summer studying the fruit of the Spirit, which really was a practical study in sanctification. Now, sanctification is the ongoing, uh, progressive work of the Holy Spirit to make God's people more like God's Son. That's sanctification. The progressive, ongoing work of the Spirit to make God's people more like God's Son. Paul's main point in Galatians 1 to 4 is not sanctification, but justification. God is uh, declaring sinners righteous, not guilty. And that declaration comes about not by anything sinners do, but by faith alone in everything the Savior Jesus has done, who he is and what he has done on the behalf of sinners. It is by faith alone that sinners are justified when God declares them not guilty and counts them truly righteous through the faith that unites them to Jesus. So then in Galatians 5, after building the foundation of justification in chapters 1 to 4, Paul moves then in chapter 5 to the implications of God's justifying sinners. And this is extremely important to remember when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit. The ground of the gospel is God's justification of sinners, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. It's God's work. But the goal of God's work of the gospel is his sanctifying sinners, his spirit making his people more like his son. So that's, that's the goal of God's saving sinners. So this transformation then, this, this spirit-produced sanctification is something we do not muster up on our own. It's something the spirit produces. with. It's the fruit of the spirit. What we produce is what Paul spent time a few verses earlier in 16 through 21 talking about the works of the flesh. That's what we can produce. The spirit must produce these fruit. It isn't something we can muster up on our own. And so what we've done this summer is looked at this in terms of root and fruit. 
the root of God's character produces this fruit in his people. So the God of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness makes us a people. The God of those things make us a people of those things, a people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And then today we come to the last fruit in chapter 5, self-control, self-control. And I imagine that those two words conjure up countless feelings and thoughts both for those in the church and for those around us. Uh, some people think self-control is the central message of Christianity. Like, that's what we're doing today. We're here to learn what not to do and then to be taught what to do, and then we go out there and try and do it better than we did last week. That, that's what many people around us think that we are doing here this morning. Now, Let's just grant, even if that was true, this is more and more viewed as regressive in our culture. Like, who's to say you're not living right? Who's to say I am up here explaining things from an archaic book that has anything to do with anything about any of this? Like, you do you, and don't let anyone stop you. Your life is the blank canvas, and you're the artist. So you just live your life and don't look back. So even if the central message of Christianity is self-control, let's just, let's just play the devil's advocate for a moment and say, okay, more and more, the world around us views this as increasingly regressive. And inside the church, many people do think this is about, I gotta pull myself up from my bootstraps. And so how can the Holy Spirit's work of self-control actually be good news in a world like ours? How can self-control be good news? Well, it's good news to the church because the Spirit produces self-control rather than demanding you go out there and try harder this week. The message of Christianity isn't do this, don't do that, and then God will bless you. The message of Christianity is God's beloved Son, in whom he is well pleased, has done it all once and for all in his life, death, and resurrection. And by faith, what is then true of Jesus becomes more and more true of us. It is true in the ground of the gospel justification, and it becomes more and more true in God's ongoing work of us, or excuse me, in us. So you don't exercise self-control in order for God to save you. You become a person of self-control because God has already saved you, and he is working in you to make you more like his son. And that's the good news of self-control for God's people. But that still leaves us with the question of how is self-control good news to the world around us? Well, when we think about it in terms of Galatians 5, self-control is actually good news for the world around us because self-control is actually about true freedom. Self-control is about true freedom. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul begins by telling us it's for freedom Jesus has set you free. Galatians chapter 5 is all about true freedom. 
that is given to those whose faith is in Jesus. So walking by the Spirit, living out the Spirit-produced fruit in our daily lives is not giving up one set of chains, like the chains of sin, for the chains of religion. That's just exchanging chains, that, and, which is what many people think Christianity is. We're just people who don't do these things anymore, but now we're, we're chained up to these new religious regulations. That is not Christianity. It's for freedom Jesus has set us free. Paul talks about this uh, in Colossians 2. He writes it this way to the church in Colossae. He says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Why do you go about living as if your, your walk with God, the thing he has saved you from and saved you to, is now about do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. He says, indeed, these have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. In other words, people look really super spiritual when they, when they uh, regulate their lives like this. It seems wise, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, in changing our hearts and making us people who no longer live according to the works of the flesh, but are now walking by the Spirit with these fruits of the Spirit dominating our lives. So in other words, brothers and sisters, self-control doesn't begin with externals. It doesn't it doesn't begin with, okay, I'm not going to handle these things. I'm not going to touch these things. I'm not going to taste these things. I'm not going to do these things. Self-control doesn't begin with externals. It's not about new rules and regulations for living. It's about the Spirit transforming our hearts so that we no longer indulge in the flesh. It's about a heart that's no longer enslaved to sin and our indulgence in the flesh. Self-control begins with a transformed heart that's now free to seek satisfaction in God. That, that's where self-control begins. The Spirit's work of changing our hearts and freeing us from sin in order that we might seek our satisfaction in God. And, and this is where the root, then, of self-control in God's character helps us. Yes, you heard me right. I know that might sound strange. Self-control is rooted in God's character. So let, let me explain what I don't mean. I, I don't mean that God fights temptation to sin or battles fleshly desires and passions like we do. I do mean that since self-control is about finding our satisfaction in God, then self-control is rooted in God's delight in himself. God's delight in himself is the root of our self-control and produces the fruit of us seeking satisfaction in God. And uh, as you probably well know, I'm indebted to John Piper uh, and his, in my opinion, best book, uh, The Pleasures of God, on, on this uh, thought and, and what follows here for a few minutes. Uh, he, he has shown throughout the scriptures as he digs into God's revelation of himself in these things and what God takes pleasure in, that God's greatest delight is actually God. 
And, and the church has historically, in the confessions and the catechisms, uh, recognized this, even before John Piper was ever born, is that uh, God is the first and best of beings. And God delights in himself as the first and best of beings. And so God created humanity to glorify him and enjoy displaying and magnifying his glory forever. So God, Piper says, is the most God-centered being in the universe. Uh, God has no other gods before him. He, he is alone to be worshipped and loved. God is most jealous for his own exaltation and glory. And he says in Isaiah that he will not share his glory with another. God is all about himself. So because he has, it is all about his own glory and exaltation, God cannot love or enjoy anything more than God. And God delights in this because he's the best. If God delighted in something else, that would then be God, and God would be an idolater. And so God then, in his redemptive purposes, has aimed to have a people know and love and enjoy him above all things for all time. We're talking about heaven and New Jerusalem in both these classes on Sunday mornings. And the end of what everything is aimed at is living with God, him being our God and him being with us and us enjoying him and praising him and adoring him and worshiping him and loving him forever and ever and ever without end because he's the best. And so we could say that God is radically controlled by his ultimate aims in creating and saving the enjoyment and praise of his glory. This is why God creates, and this is why God saves. Just real briefly, we can look see this in Psalm 19 and Ephesians 1. Why did God create? Because it declares his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. Why did God save? He predestined, Ephesians 1, his people for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So he chose to, this was his desire. He's controlled by this will for what? The praise of his glorious grace. And so God is most satisfied in God. His greatest delight is himself because he's the first and best of beings. And so he demands that he is central and exalted to everything and above all. Now, if you or I made these claims, if I came in here and said, five points is all about me, and thanks for being here, but you should go out there and invite a few more people because this is all about me, it would be sinfully egotistical. And if you go out there and made everything about you, it would be sinfully egotistical, but not so for God. As Piper argues, uh, God is the one being for whom self-exaltation is actually the most loving act because love leads us to what is infinitely and eternally satisfying, which is God. So when God exalts God and commands 
us and everything and everyone, everywhere, all the time, to join us in exalting him. He's actually inviting us to find our deepest satisfaction in the only thing that will never fail to satisfy. That's loving, not egotistical. So let me pull all of this together in terms of self-control. What do you, when, when I say self-control, what's the first thing that comes to mind? P- probably a don't, a negative, right? Don't do these things. I, I got to get my life together. I got to stop. Self-control then, biblically, is actually about starting. Not so much stopping. Self-control is mainly about joy and satisfaction. And in the Bible then, It is the negative connotation, self-control. It is about leaving off desires. But it's because we're pursuing the wrong desires. So it's not about uh, stopping. It's really about what is actually truly satisfying. It's less about why can't I do this and more about what's best. Not asking the question, how do I stop? It's about asking the questions, how do I start actually finding joy and satisfaction in the only being that will ever truly satisfy and never fail? And the Spirit then produces both this desire and the ability then to say no to the idols we used to seek satisfaction in and begin to seek life and joy and satisfaction in God. So self-control is less about saying no to things and more about saying yes to God. It's more about setting our hearts every day and then resetting it throughout the day on what will truly satisfy. So it is about saying no. But think about it in terms of like this. It's saying no because I've turned from those life-taking idols to the life-giving God. So I'm saying no because I've chosen to say yes. So I've turned my back on the fleeting, death-giving, enslaving, fleeting joys of sin. And because I've chosen God, I've turned my back on that, and I'm turning to seek satisfaction in God. That's what I think self-control is mainly about throughout the scriptures. It is saying no, but it's saying no because we're saying yes to God. And that's why the Spirit actually has to produce this fruit in us. This is why we can't do it on our own. This is why we can't muster it up. Because as sinners, our sinful nature will never choose God apart from his power and grace. Because you'll never not find those idols and their promises of joy uh, less Uh, alluring and less desirous than God. I think I said that weird, so let me try again. You won't find God's beauty more alluring or his delights more desirous than sin apart from the Spirit giving us the grace and ability to do so. We will always only ever choose sin in our sinful states. This is why the Spirit has to change our hearts through the ground of the gospel and then make us people through his Holy Spirit power and grace building, producing this self-control in us. 
because we will never find sin less desirous than God apart from the Holy Spirit. This is why Ephesians 2, uh, when Paul's writing to the church in uh, Ephesus, says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, what you once were controlled by, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sin control, we were controlled by our sinful passions. We followed it. We loved it. We were dead in it. Our sinful natures don't hate sin. Outside of Christ, everyone loves sin and pursues it. So when, even, when, even when people outside of Christ do something that, you know, even they know somehow is wrong, what's the, what's the worldly repentance in those moments? <laughs> they don't actually repent. They start to make excuses or they rationalize. Or they, but a lot of times you'll hear people say, I don't know, I don't know why I did that. I don't know where that came from, right? It's because... They are, by nature, people who love sin. No one forced them to do that. It's, they do what you want to do at that moment. We live to carry out the desires of our natures. And it's at this point that when you're talking with someone or you're speaking about these things, you'll usually hear the question, well, what about free will? Well, what does Ephesians 2 say? Since sin entered the world... Every person is born dead in sin and enslaved to it. And so this, then, is what is known as the doctrine of radical corruption. Sin has corrupted human nature to its very core. We are, at our very core, corrupted by sin, which means we don't start neutral, and then we have this blank slate that then we sin and then become sinners— we actually sin because we are sinners. We're born dead in sin. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked in Adam. And so, we will never choose God over sin because we don't want to. We're not forced to. We just don't want to. We love sin. Apart from God and his work in us, we will always only ever choose sin. This is what Romans 8 gets at when Paul's writing to the church in Rome. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It, it, it can't. It's impossible. Because those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Because we don't want to. We're hostile to God. We love our sin. We are not wanting anything to do with God. It's not like we're trying to get there and we can't. Or it's not like we don't want to sin. We're sinners. And we're hostile to God. We have minds that are hostile and we will not submit to God's law because we're in the flesh so we cannot please him. And so Martin Luther uh, then referred to this in his classic theological work uh, as the bondage of the will the bondage of the will, uh, that we are controlled by these desires in a way that we will always only choose it because that's what we want to do. 
So then Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s uh, wrote from a similar point of view, but he actually titled his book The Freedom of the Will. So you have Luther's Bondage of the Will and Edwards' Freedom of the Will. And, and though those titles are seemingly opposed, they actually are talking about the same thing and teach the same thing. Uh, the will is free. But apart from God's grace, in our freedom, we will only ever choose sin every time because we don't want God. It's not that, it's, it, it, it's not that we're unable or we're so bound that we are uh, never going to choose God and it's God's fault that we don't come to him. The will is free, but we're controlled by our uh, sinful natures and flesh in such a way that our minds choose to do what we want to do in that moment, which is sin. Because, and Edwards gets at this a little bit more. He talks about, or excuse me, he defines the human will as something which the mind chooses, which means we're never forced to sin. We sin because we want to. We love sin more than we love God. And so our wills aren't out of our control, we actually always choose what we think is the most desirable thing at any given moment. In other words, we do what we want to do. Oh, I, I don't know why that, I don't know why I did that. Yeah, you do. You wanted to do it. You thought in that moment that would give you the most joy and pleasure and satisfaction. Because our wills and our values and our desires and our joys are all corrupted by sin. So in that moment, we were doing exactly what we wanted to do, which is us. And so uh, Romans 8 reveals then that sinners actually can't please God because we do not want to. Our wills are free to, but we can't please God because we don't want to, because our minds are hostile to God. And so one author writes about this way to help us summarize uh, these things. Uh, he's, he says, when confronted with God, the mind of a sinner never thinks that God's way is good. The will is free to choose God. Nothing is stopping it. But the mind does not regard submission to and service of God as desirable. Rather, it turns from God, usually to self. And so the Spirit-produced self-control then, in light of all these things, is a transformed heart growing in love and desire of God. And a spirit-produced, changed will that can choose to stop turning from God and start turning to Him. Now, I know that's a lot. Um, and be happy to talk more after the service. But, but that's where I think Paul is getting at uh, through these things about self-control. And so I want to spend the remaining uh, time we have looking at three main areas the Bible then applies self-control. Uh, because it is something the Spirit produces within us that we walk out as we live in step with the Spirit. Self we are people, and will be increasingly so, people of self-control. But not as we muster it up, but as we're given a transformed heart that actually begins to desire and want God more than those things we used to go to. And so we must remember self, the beginning of self-control. It begins with that spirit-transformed heart that says no to sin as we're free to seek a superior joy. 
And so if you've never read, uh, well, Piper's Pleasures of God would be outstanding, um, but that's a book. You could read also Thomas Chalmers' sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And you'd do yourself a greater service taking the time to read that this week than going home and making a list of things that you want to stop doing. I know The Expulsive Power of a New Affection sounds like a very old Puritan-like sermon, and that's because it is. Um, but if, if you think, okay, I, I hope I can communicate the rest of this sermon in such a way that you don't go home and go, I got these five things to clean up, and I just got to start doing better, I'll start tomorrow, you know? Like, you would do yourself a better favor this afternoon reading this sermon than going home and making that list. Because Chalmers' main point is actually that the power to start doing a list that you might at some point, and you do at some point, need to maybe list out, is the power to actually then carry those things out and saying no to sin resides in knowing that sin never out-satisfies God. So you destroy the power of sin's temptation when you place in front of your eyes the greater delight of God in that area. So the greater delight of God destroys the controlling desire that sin used to have in that area. So whatever joy or pleasure sin promises, whatever your list might look like, because it's going to look different for all of us, what we need to then say is not just no, but yes. How can I say no to this thing and yes to God instead? And we have to do that because we can't just say no. Self-control is mainly about seeking joy. And so self-control is not just saying no to something, it's redirecting our hearts on what will actually satisfy. Because sin cannot be fuller than God's fullness of joy. And, and sin cannot last longer than God's forevermore pleasures. That's Psalm 1611. And so there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore promised. And so we must make that list, but the list has to include not just what we're saying no to, but how God is better than what I used to give myself to. And so with that thing, uh, with, with that in mind, then let's look at the three main areas that the root of God delighting in himself produces the fruit of self-control in us. And it does so in three main areas. Uh, our mind, our desires, and our action. So head, heart, hands, uh, mind, heart, actions. Whatever, whatever floats your boat uh, for how you want to take those notes. But let's first, let's look at our minds, our, our heads, our thoughts. Uh, Paul links self-control with sober-mindedness in 1 Timothy and, and Titus. Uh, and he does so because what we do is connected to what we believe. So you might say you believe something, but what you do actually tells us what you really believe. Right? You can say I believe things, but your functional belief is actually demonstrated by how you live. And no one just falls into sin or is forced to sin. We sin because we've entertained thoughts that are sinful rather than taking them captive as Paul teaches us to do. And so if you talk to someone in a proud, 
a condescending, unloving way, it started with the thought that you're better than other people. No one in this room would ever say, I think I'm better than you. (laughs) But how we respond to people in that moment tells us what you really believe. And so pride, condescension, unloving responses to people starts because we're loving ourselves more than we're loving God and others. Uh, If you're discontent, it started with the thought that you deserve better than you have. If you're discontent, it started with the thought that how God is unfolding his providence is not just towards you, and he might not understand what you really deserve or need. If you live to please people, it started with fearful thoughts of men rather than fearing God. And we can just keep going on and on and on. We do what we think. What we do began some point in our minds. But have you ever uh, had a thought that you can't quite seem to get a tight enough grip on to take it captive? Just me? (laughs) You're like, I know. You're like, stop it. You tell yourself to stop, but it just doesn't work. And this is where Chalmers' expulsive power is so helpful. You don't just say no by saying no. You don't just stop by stopping. You stop by thinking about something better. This is where Philippians 4 is so helpful. Paul to the church in Philippi. He says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So we stop by thinking about something better. And if you are like me, and I think a lot of you are, you will not stop thinking about everything sinful the first time you step foot on the Philippians 4 path. If you're like me, you're going to have to do it over and over and over and over and sometimes over and over and over again. Our minds are going to take us off that pathway and i got to get right back on it. This is why the Spirit's got to help us. That Spirit-produced conscience that says, no, don't go down that path. Get back on Philippians 4.8. You might have to start over and over again, but we conform our minds to God and His ways by meditating on what is true. If impurity is what you're struggling with, then think about what is pure. If, if treatment of others is something you're struggling with, then we must think about how we actually honor our neighbors. And we could just keep going on and on and on. What is actually lovely? If lust is something that is controlling you, you're seeing something Uh, or you're trying to find joy in something that the world tells you is lovely, that our sinful hearts tells us is lovely, but it's not as lovely as God. What is excellent? What is true? What is pure? What is joy? That's what we must meditate on. We do that, and our minds are conformed, not just by saying no, but by saying yes to Philippians 4. And while I was working on uh, this sermon this week, a a song popped in my head that my mom used to sing uh, to us when we were younger. Uh, Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll 
grow. No one knows this song, just me? Grow, grow, grow. Okay, I'm not going to sing the rest of it. (laughs) And too often as we grow up, you know, we can live like we've grown out of the foundational truths we teach to little ones. And brothers and sisters, maybe, maybe we've grown out of singing children's songs, um, but we never grow out of our daily need for communion with God in his word and in prayer. If you want to grow in self-control, it doesn't start by going home and making a list. It starts by the renewal of our mind as we meditate on God and his ways and his words. So commit yourself to making God's thoughts your thoughts, and you'll grow, grow, grow. And so as our minds are renewed and self-control is produced in us through the renewal of our minds, uh, this Spirit-produced self-control will show up in a second area in our lives, our desires, our desires. Uh, the more our minds dwell, the more our minds meditate, as more, the more we think about what God's Word says is true and pure and beautiful and lovely and excellent and honorable and praiseworthy, the more we meditate on those things, the less we'll find sin desirable. Uh, we had a, a big cookout on uh, Labor Day weekend up at... Uh, Becky's family cottage, uh, and there was so much good food. Every family um, unit was kind of uh, responsible for something of the meal, and so with all those people, there was so many good sides and food and just like plates overflowing with just mountains of the last of the summer cookout kind of foods. And uh, there was so much food, and I was so stuffed at the end. Uh, but we were also celebrating uh, one of our children's birthdays, and so um, there was cake and whoopie pie and cookies. And so, of course, about 30 seconds after dinner was done, the kids were like, let's eat cake. And I was like, I love dessert. I do. But at that point, I was so full on all the good food, the thought of eating dessert wasn't very tempting. At least at the moment. I did eat about 20 minutes later. We had, right? But that's my whole point about about this, so hang on with me, right? When you fill yourself up on the good things, the more you aspire your appetite for sin. But you have to keep doing it, just like we have to do with food. Because about 20 minutes after that burger and everything else started digesting, I was ready for cake. And that's why we have to keep telling ourselves over and over and over, what is good, what is true, what is pure, what is lovely, what is excellent. It's a daily fight. It's a fight of faith that the Spirit has equipped us through his word to fight. We have to avail ourselves of the tools the Spirit has given us. And the more you fill up on God's goodness, the more you'll spoil your appetite for sin. The more you are consumed with God, the more you'll want to cling to him. And we have to. We have to reject what is evil and cling to what is good. Because listen to John 1, chapter 2. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, In terms of self-control and our desires, 
what John is trying to teach us is that knowing the end of things actually helps us live every day. Knowing the end of things changes our minds and desires. Becky and I like to watch football, and we often record games, um, usually because they're on late and we like to go to bed. Um, and so, but there's other times when the kids have games or the things at church. Uh, sometimes uh, we just don't want to watch commercials, so we'll record these games. But the problem with recording games is some people like to watch them live for some reason. Um, and if they know we're all fans, and people do, they start to text us, right? Or people put on social media, yeah, big win, or whew, that was a crushing loss. And knowing the end of those things changes Becky and I's desire to watch the game. It ruins our enjoyment of the game. And in a similar way, when I know that this world and everything in it is passing away, the things that the world holds out to me, that the sinful nature within me has this pull towards, when I know the end of that thing is going to pass away, then it looks a whole lot less desirable in the moment. Like, if I know that's going to lead me off the cliff, why would I go that way? It ruins the temptation of, of a feeding pleasure when I know its end. Now, of course, the challenge is to shape my thinking daily that this world and the things in it are actually passing away. Because life in this world can seem a whole lot more permanent than it really is. And so, brothers and sisters, we must continually shape our mind by God's word. And as we do, we'll watch the Spirit transform us into people who desire that which will last for eternity. To remind ourselves that we are on our way to new Jerusalem and an eternity with God. And to leave off those fleeting pleasures that will lead me elsewhere. And so as our minds and our desires are shaped by then uh, God's word, the spirit will produce self-control in the final area, the third area, our actions, head, heart, and then our hands. When our minds and hearts are freed by the spirit to begin tasting and seeing that the Lord is better than anything this world and its passing away has to offer me, your lives will change. Your actions will follow. What we do with our bodies will change. How we live will change. What we spend our time and our money on will change. How we treat other people will change. Not because we've mustered up the will to carry out some new religious regulations of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, do not do these things, but because Jesus has set us free from the chains of sin to walk in step with the Spirit. To, to finally live as we were created and saved to do for the glory of God in all things. So it frees us from living for money to seeing our money as a gift from God that he has uh, commanded us to steward for his name and his kingdom. So I didn't earn that money. God gave me a job and provided funds so that I can then steward for his name so that what is true in heaven becomes more true on earth. I mean, why else would you give to the regular budget of five points? Why would you give us your money? <laughs> That's dumb, right? If, if these things are not true. 
Why else would then you give above and beyond to build a space on this corner for the preaching of a crucified Jewish man for decades to come? Why would you give your money to these things? You, if these things are not true, they're, you eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die. <laughs> I mean, why else? Why else would you do these things? Would you choose to? Because we've been freed from one set of chains and death to live for the glory of God, to join him in finding our greatest satisfaction in him and inviting our neighbors and nations to do the same. It, it, it frees you then. Having your mind and heart changed by the Holy Spirit frees you from the daily grind of going to the office and, and just punching the clock and doing the things and hopefully holding out that your bosses recognize you and you, you get some promotions and you do this and you can get to retirement and then you can do that and then you die. The Spirit produced fruit that for freedom, Christ has set you free. The ground of the gospel and its goal then frees you just from the daily grind that so many of our neighbors are on to then be ambassadors for God's name and kingdom in the workplaces he's placed you in. Now it's not just about plot, clock, uh, punching the clock. It's about how God is going to get glory in me and through me in the place he's put me. And so why else would you seek to be a light in the darkness where the only things that matter are bottom lines and climbing ladders, no matter what it takes or who you step on? In other words, why would you not live out our culture's gospel? Why would you not live it out? You do you. And don't let anyone stop you. Because there's a better joy. <laughs> because there's a superior pleasure that can be yours. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. This is, this is I hope you're seeing where self-control is coming into play here. It's not, our desires aren't too strong, but they're actually too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to you. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. This is why self-control is actually good news for our culture. We live in the age of self. The air we breathe is known as expressive individualism. It means we live in a culture where it's assumed by everyone around us that every person has the inalienable right to define for themselves the pursuit of happiness, however they want to choose to pursue it. And your joy is actually made full when you have the ability to not only define yourself and live however you want, because that'd be one thing. But our time is the time where not only can you define and live however you want, your joy is made full only when you have the ability to express that identity and assert it in the public square without any hindrance or outside standards of judgment. So, Joy is me defining and expressing it and not letting anyone say anything about it. 
Now, life and joy is looking from then within to find your truth and your meaning free from any external constraints. But what would C.S. Lewis say if he was alive today? He would actually, I think, argue that our age of self isn't consumed enough with the self. We're actually still desiring things. We're too weak in our desires, not too strong. Our desires aren't actually strong enough for ourselves. If we really wanted joy, we'd stop looking for it in mud pies and look for it at the sea. And so, friends, if you're fooling about with things that will never satisfy when infinite joy can be yours, the message of Christianity is that for freedom, Christ died to set sinners free. May God give you eyes to see Jesus today so that you turn from the things that only lead to death and find your life in him alone. And brothers and sisters, our wills aren't out of our control. As Romans 8 says, we always choose what we think is the most desirable thing at any given moment. And so may the Holy Spirit renew our minds by God's word, give us eyes to see the infinitely better joy we have in God and produce wills in us that choose to taste and see that the Lord is actually good. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help in these things that we see that you are at work in us but you also produce the will within us to work out what you're working in us. And it's so easy to fall off on one side or the other of these things, that we don't do anything or that we do everything. And we pray, though, that your Holy Spirit would give us the ability to see where we have stepped off the path of true joy in you into things that will never satisfy, into things that are passing away, and that your Holy Spirit would give us the eyes and the ability and the power to turn back to Jesus. And we're thankful that it is for freedom you have set us free. That these things are true freedom, not another set of chains. And so we pray for the grace this week to walk by the Spirit and live in step with the Spirit so that in everything we say and do and think would be to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen.